I would like to see the day when somebody would be appointed surgeon somewhere who had no hands, for the operative part is the least part of the work. Dr. Harvey Cushing, 1911. Welcome to the least part of the work, a love story between a surgeon, his patients, and the rest of us. suffered from a marked acromegaly since 1904. In October 1910, he underwent a transphenoidal operation for cellar decompression, followed by a second stage operation in January of 1911 at the Johns Hopkins Hospital by Dr. Harvey Cushing. In August 1923, President Calvin Coolidge's son died of blood poisoning from a blister after playing tennis. That a president's son could die of such a mundane illness shows the poor level of health care available at the time. In the beginning of the 1920s, the most advanced diagnostic test available was a plain x-ray, a dark, indistinct image not unlike looking through a fogged window on a stormy night. Indeed, the entire knowledge of x-rays was less than 20 years old. Except for picking out bacteria on a slide, there were no commonly used blood tests. Though the cause of infection was well known, there were no effective treatments against infectious disease. Penicillin was two decades in the future. Surgery had left the era of carbolic acid sprays and washes just a generation before. The vaunted age of asepsis was in its infancy. A few surgeons still operated in their bare hands. Blood typing was unknown. The concept of shock, the body's stereotypic stress reaction to excessive blood loss was known but its application was hit or miss. If a patient lost blood in surgery, there was no replacing it. If he lost too much blood, there was no replacing him. The practice of anesthesia was not scientific or even calibrated. A few drops of ether could make a patient sleep. A few too many drops, and he'd sleep forever. The task of sleeping a patient was usually left to whoever might be available, regardless of knowledge or training. Sometimes, it was the surgeon himself both passing the ether and wielding the knife. Vitals were monitored haphazardly. Death under anesthesia was a very real occurrence. In this fraught world of early 20th century medical madness, a few men stood apart and endured heaven and hell to usher in modern surgery. One such man was Harvey Cushing, and he was a surgeon, a brain surgeon, the world's first. These are his patients. The suffering is theirs. The empathy is his. The benefit is ours. Case 1784. His name is unrecorded in the case files. We will call him Hank. In the accompanying black and white photos, Hank looks to be a man of about 40 years, Caucasian and a very large man with a rather stooped and uncomfortable appearing posture. He is gangly and big boned. His profile almost ape-like in its stance. His arms seemed too long, dragging almost to his knees. His hands could palm a modern-day basketball. Look at Hank's legs, thick and bony and rooted the way ancient trees are thick and overgrown in the trunk. We can't look at them without imagining how painful must have been every step he took. Such pain would be measured in years. If his legs suggest pain, his face suggests suffering. 
We are drawn to Hank's face, to his skewed, bulging eyes and coarse features. His lower jaw is too large, his ears floppy, his lips no longer delicate but thick and bold. Those eyes. Here Hank's history is writ large and can't be ignored. His unseen pupils are wider than normal, big and obvious to us. The eyes protrude, the one more than the other, causing his blind gaze to skew slightly off kilter. Hank does not smile in any of his photos. His expression is one of quiet stoicism. Hank is experienced in his suffering. Indeed, Hank is a fighter. Summary of Positive Findings September 16, 1914 Dr. Rand Subjective 1. Skeletal changes Marked acromegalic changes since 1904 2. Failing vision Left eye 12 years, totally blind, about 5 years Right eye, about 8 years 3. Frontal and temporal pain in the head Relieved by operation 4 years ago Okay, so that's a long report with a lot of words. If you want to hear the report, turn up the left channel of your speaker or headphones and turn down the right. Otherwise, I'll just tell you what it says. The x-ray report is remarkable. Remember, this is 1914. X-rays were only discovered in 1896. Dr. Cushing himself was one of the early proponents, showing in 1897, as an intern, how useful they might be. Still, the x-rays of the era were poor by any standard, dark and indistinct, not quite reading tea leaves in the scrum of your cup, perhaps, but not much better. Reading an x-ray is, in fact, the art of reading shadows, which really means pattern recognition. How do the various shadows interact with one another? In 1914, the only discernible shadows are those of the bones, for the most part, and nobody's been at this thing too long. So nobody really knows what's normal appearing and what isn't. It's first-generation radiology, dark-age stuff. As often as not, the only way to know if what's seen on x-ray is significant is to compare it with what's found at autopsy, which is, of course, a bit late to help Hank. Nonetheless, this is a remarkably detailed report, especially of the skull x-ray. Today, skull x-rays are rarely used in favor of much more reliable imaging. This report counts the thickness of the bones in various locations, the size of the sinuses, etc. Most importantly, and especially useful, it describes an enlarged cella, the usually small cup-like saddle within the bony skull base that houses the pituitary gland, and a fairly dense mottling within the confines of the enlarged cella. These are the radiographic fingerprints of a large pituitary tumor. The pituitary gland, a.k.a. the master gland, releases a number of hormones with a wide range of effects upon the body. One of them, and Hank is a prime witness, is growth. Hank's tumor is encouraging excessive growth. If not stopped, it will surely kill him. September 23, 1914. Dr. Cushing. Fundi, glistening primary atrophy without any evidence of edema. Lamina cribosa clear and apparent. No new tissue. Impression, from extracranial appearances, there must be pressure. Venules and eyelids very full. Other than for headaches, lowering of vision, increased asthenia condition very much as in Baltimore. Asymmetry of skull with prominence of left malar bone. Greater exophthalmos left than right. Okay, so what's going on here? This is Dr. Cushing's preoperative note. After examining Hank, he's verified that he's symptomatic. Rather ominously, 
he's identified that Hank has increased pressure. And by this, he means increased pressure inside of Hank's head. Such pressure is evidenced by the fullness of the venules in Hank's eyes, as well as by his headaches. Hank is clearly suffering. Among other things, Dr. Cushing also notes that Hank's left eye is protruding somewhat more than the right. This is significant because it might lead to a localization of the tumor. Remember, this is 1914, and they don't have anything like CT or MRI. In 1914, the holy grail of the clinical examination is to identify where the tumor is. And it all depends on how good a clinician a person is to do that. Dr. Cushing was an excellent clinician. Operative note, September 24, 1914. Anesthesia, ether, Miss Boothby. Right-sided decompression. Nothing unusual in the performance for the enormous field and the fact that the temporal bone was exceedingly thin. A very large defect was made and the dura was opened with an abundant escape of cerebrospinal fluid. Nevertheless, there was some tension even with the loss of fluid, and I am encouraged to believe that the indications were clear for a relief of pressure by this means. It may be said that several large mastoid cells over the ear were opened and occluded with wax. Closure as usual in layers. Dr. Cushing. Okay, so this is Dr. Cushing's op note for September 24, 1914. Hanks had surgery, and things have gone okay. Not spectacular, but okay. First thing to note here is that this was not an attempt to actually remove the tumor. It turned into a decompression. Whether this is because Cushing couldn't find the tumor isn't really clear. Nonetheless, he resorted to the time-honored fashion of doing a decompression. This is an operation that he himself had devised and pretty much perfected. It's used when the tumor can't be located and one needs to make room for further expansion of the tumor. This will help decrease the pressure inside the head and hopefully the patient's symptoms. Also of note, Dr. Cushing encountered several mastoid cells. These are voids in the bone behind the ear and if they aren't taken care of, they can lead to a spinal fluid leak. In this case, Dr. Cushing chose to plug or occlude the mastoid cells with wax. This is still done today. One more thing. In his preoperative note, Cushing had mentioned that he thought he would find pressure inside the patient's head. Indeed, at surgery he did. First, he noted that the temporal bone was exceedingly thin, which is caused by a very high pressure inside the head over a long period of time. And second, he notes later in the note that there was some tension with the loss of spinal fluid. This tension is the increased pressure. According to a note from Dr. Rand, dated September 26, 1914, Hank made a good recovery from the surgery. Dr. Rand notes, patient made an excellent operative recovery. This morning, quite talkative. He finishes with a little bit of information about the wound itself, stating, Temperature, pulse, and respiration normal. All stitches removed by Dr. Cushing. Excellent approximation of wound margins. No reddening or injection. Silver foil and gauze colloidian dressing. This is all important because remember, in 1914, we didn't have antibiotics. And without antibiotics, it's difficult to fight a wound infection. Amazingly, one of Dr. Cushing's great breakthroughs was his very low infection rate. It was extremely unusual for one of his patients to have an infection. This was in part because of his meticulous technique in the operating room. He had, in fact, been a student of Dr. Halstead, 
William Halstead at Johns Hopkins, the father of modern surgery, and because of his excellent post-operative care. Harvey Cushing was meticulous in everything he did. December 9, 1914, Dr. Town. It has been noticed for several days that he does not use his right arm quite as well as formerly, and on investigation, it is found that he cannot put his hand on the top of his head. The right deltoid muscle is very weak. Two and a half months after his surgery, Hank took a turn for the worse. Over the next couple of months, Hank went on to develop severe headaches as well as hallucinations. He returned to see Dr. Cushing in mid-February, 1915. February 15, 1915, Dr. Cushing. The patient has had of late recurring attacks of his severe cephalgia with vomiting and has strongly petitioned for operative relief. This, his father now has just returned from the West, also desires. On February 13th, he was prepared for operation, but he was in bad condition, having copious periods of projectile vomiting. Operation postponed. Strongly petitioned for operative relief is an odd phrase and probably one we wouldn't use today, but it's clear that Hank is suffering immensely. Cushing apparently intended to operate on February 13th, but he found his patient in such bad condition that he had to postpone it. What could be more ominous for a surgery? Operative note, February 15th, 1915. Anesthesia, ether, Miss Boothby. Impossible to remove cella contents owing to calcareous tissue. The anesthetic was taken well and the approach to the cella was made with thorough removal of the medium septum. Structures were identified and the old opening in the base of the cella was opened. This was enlarged, but instead of meeting a soft struma or a cyst as had been hoped, a bony growth was found occupying the lower part of the cella with only here and there a small pocket of glandular tissue. Some small bits of this tissue were removed for study but it was impossible with the delicate pituitary rangeurs to clean out the rest of the fossa. A study of the x-ray made it apparent that the lower third of the greatly enlarged fossa was possibly shown to be ossified or calcareous. There is a more or less definite shadow which had not been previously interpreted as the shadow of any calcareous structures. The operation lasted an undue length of time and patient's condition at the end was rather poor. In view of the failure to secure pressure relief, and in view of his previous condition, the operative prognosis is bad. Dr. Cushing. There's a lot here, but we don't need to sort it all out. Realize this was not simply an attempt to decompress and make room for the expanding tumors in the previous surgery, but rather an attempt on the tumor itself. Knowing the location of the normal pituitary gland to be under the brain, and essentially behind the nose at the center of the head, Cushing had decided upon an anatomic approach to it, transphenoidal surgery, or through the nose, rather than via craniotomy, which would approach it from above, i.e. through the brain itself. In this case, at least, that was a bad idea. Although it didn't work, the tumor was too large and he encountered unexpected calcification, the calcareous tissue that he alludes to, probably the mottling seen on the previously described skull x-rays. Note that in writing his op note, he remarks upon the skull x-ray and the more or less definitive shadow which had not been previously interpreted as the shadow of any calcareous, calcified structure. This and other operations demonstrated the feasibility and later the practicality of the transphenoidal approach. A side note here. Cushing was not the first to use the transphenoidal approach, but he did perfect it and popularize it, 
Later in his career, he moved away from it, preferring a craniotomy to the transphenoidal approach. Probably this was because of the large size of the tumors he was encountering, which are difficult to remove with a transphenoidal operation. Today, both approaches are used, but note that most of the tumors we encounter today are not nearly as large as those in Cushing's day. Cushing encountered such large tumors because it was all new. Today, with a century of medical and surgical experience behind us, the tumors we encounter are mostly small. Postoperative note, February 15, 1915. Dr. Town. He made a quite well recovery. Temperature, pulse, and respiration normal. February 16, 1915. Dr. Town. Patient became extremely restless. Pulse and temperature began to go up. Much mucus collected to the throat, but drained well when he was put on his side. On 1 p.m., he was sweating profusely. Temperature, 107 degrees. Pulse, 150 irregular and thready. Respiration with periods of apnea, but not typical chain stokes. His color became progressively cyanotic. He died at 3.40 a.m. due to respiratory arrest. Dr. Towns' post-op check notes that Hank made a good recovery, despite the fact that Cushing's op note reported the patient to be in bad shape by the end of surgery. Nonetheless, within hours, Hank's condition deteriorated catastrophically. He was dead less than 24 hours after his third brain surgery. Hank died on February 15, 1915. Autopsy report, February 17, 1915. On removal of the brain, the optic nerves were seen to extend over the mass as much thinned ribbon-like bands. They were apparently under considerable tension. Sella. The tumor adherent to the cell are removed in fragments in order to preserve the bony characteristics. The normal appearance of the cell is almost completely obliterated. The tumor lies in the fossa, which is 6.5 centimeters in breadth, as measured from the anterior clinoid processes, and 5.5 centimeters posteriorly, as measured from the posterior clinoid processes. At autopsy, a very large tumor was found, extending well up and out of the confines of the normal cell, which had been obliterated by the expanding mass. In fact, the tumor was so large, it not only pressed upon and thinned the optic nerves, hence the blindness, it actually pushed the eyeballs themselves outward. An interesting note is that the tumor was discovered to contain a large amount of recently clotted blood, suggesting that Hank was actually okay at the end of surgery, but later hemorrhaged into the operative cavity suddenly, which led to his acute worsening and death. Such a complication of surgery, post-op hemorrhage, is well known even today. Hank's tumor was such that he never had a chance with the tools and techniques then known. Today, he would almost certainly have survived. Imagine how Hank must have suffered. Progressive blindness over a decade, unrelenting headaches without any effective medical treatment, and so severe he eventually consented to three major but unproven brain surgeries. It may have been he thought he had no choice in the end, but remember, such maladies have affected man since the dawn of time. It is only recently, less than a thimble's volume in all the collected volumes of the world's oceans time-wise, that we've been able to address these issues with some reasonable hope. And then, only because of patients like Hank, who had the courage to step forward into the unknown. Hank's final operation was an attempt to actually operate on the tumor itself, to change the time-honored outcome. It failed, but the attempt was valiant given the limitations of the day. 
No selective task lighting or microscope, despite working six or eight inches deep in the head at the furthest reach of a deep, dark hole. No ability to transfuse blood. No intraop x-rays to guide a surgeon. Vitals could be monitored, and sometimes were during surgery. Always in Cushing's OR, actually. But doing something about poorly trending vitals was another thing altogether. Although even the bravest surgeon risked his or her patient's life, and not his or her own, only a surgeon of profound empathy, skills, and resilience of soul could attempt such a momentous adventure under the circumstances. This was Cushing's great offering to his patients and the rest of us, that he could return to such a place of danger and anxiety again and again, despite losses piling upon losses. Cushing, however, had one other great attribute. He could see the forest through the trees as no other surgeon of his day, and he gradually learned to apply what he discovered in that forest as he moved tree to tree. Over time, the forest became more familiar and less daunting, with the successes eventually surpassing the losses. The least part of the work is the story of how this happened, one patient at a time. Hello, constant listener. This is Edison McDaniels. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in another week or so with another article. Until then, you can support this podcast by telling your friends about it. The best publicity for a podcast is word of mouth, and we'd appreciate your help with that. Also, visit our home on the web at surgicalfiction.com, where you can find out more about us and more about our other podcasts as well. My name is Edison McDaniels. Thanks for listening.